Welcome to Hong Kong Heritage on the Christmas weekend. Christmas Day 1941, 75 years ago, marked the surrender of British Hong Kong to the invading Japanese forces. They would control the territory for nearly four years. In the next two programmes, I join Philip Cracknell, who researches Hong Kong's Second World War history, has a blog, and is often combing the hills with his metal detector to find bullets and other discoveries. We walk along the Wong Nai Chung Gap Trail, which was put together a few years ago by the government, with the great input of local war historians Kotim Kung and Tony Bannum. The Japanese forces crossed into Hong Kong from the mainland on December the 8th. They then came down through Kowloon and crossed the harbour, arriving on Hong Kong Island on December the 18th. Wong Nai Chung Gap represents the main archery down the middle of Hong Kong Island and once the Japanese had managed to split the defence forces, the surrender was only a matter of time. During the programme, we hear extracts from the harrowing account of Tom Marsh, who was a Canadian soldier and part of the Winnipeg Grenadiers in the battle. The fighting on Wong Nai Chung Gap took place on December the 19th, 1941. Some of the last pictures to be taken in Hong Kong by our cameraman in the colony before the big flare-up in the Pacific show the arrival of the first Canadians ever to come to the Far East for duty. On the outbreak of hostilities... This easternmost outpost of the British Empire instantly rejected the Japanese ultimatum to surrender and girded itself to fight the invaders. With the fall of Kowloon, the strengthened garrison on the island, which Tokyo gives as at least 5,000 British, Canadians and Indians, with 2,000 local volunteers, set about its gallant task. Beleaguered Hong Kong straightway suffered the full fury of powerful land, sea and air forces and hit back. We're at Wong Nai Chung Gap at a place actually called Stanley Gap, a short distance from Parkview. The spot we're standing on was the scene of a major battle on the 19th of December 1941. On that morning, the Japanese arrived from three different directions. So we had 2,000 coming up the road behind us that was called Stanley Gap Road in 1941. It's now called Taitam Reservoir Road. And there were another 2,000 coming round Jardine's Lookout on a path called Secessal's Ride. And another 2,000 infantry soldiers coming down from the hills. And the area we're in was defended by about 250 soldiers, Canadian and Hong Kong volunteers. So the outcome was pretty much predetermined. That's but extraordinary. So they, it was 250 versus 6,000. Or even more, because they had, in addition to the infantry, they had artillery, they had engineers, they had medics, they had all kinds of other support units. And they'd all landed on the island the previous night. So on the night of Thursday, the 18th of December, during the hours from, say, 7 o'clock onwards, the Japanese landed on the north coast of the island, uh, 2,000 at North Point, 2,000 at Taiku, and 2,000 at Shao one and then the next morning, they all started converging on this area where we are now, Wong Nai Chung Gap. How did they come across the harbour? They came across rowing, paddle boats, steamers, sampans. They brought some boats with them. They had inflatable boats, and they, they commanded junks and sampans. And they were protected to some extent by sunken ships in the harbour, half sunk. 
They were protected by smoke billowing out of the oil storage tanks at Bayview and North Point. And although they received a lot of fire from pillboxes along the shore, many of those pillboxes had been knocked out by very accurate artillery fire. And so they were able to get ashore um, and move very quickly and land onto the high ground. The two trucks hurtled down the winding road in pitch darkness. There were now 29 of us. Lieutenant Burkett rode in the front seat of the forward truck. I rode on the front seat of the one following. This was going to war with a vengeance. Ahead of us, we could see red sky and the fires in the city. We careened and bumped over and around obstacles in the road, crashed through roadblocks before being challenged. I quite expected to see the truck in front blown to pieces by the road mines that we'd so assiduously planted. It was a miracle of instinctive actions on the part of our own driver that we did not crash headlong into the truck ahead of us. Before leaving, we'd been told that the Japanese were already on the island. We soon knew this to be true as we approached our objective. The air was bright with sparks and acrid with the smell of smoke. Guns thundered. Shells shrieked and exploded. The deadly rattle of machine guns and the whine of snipers' bullet added to the bedlam. Steel-helmeted figures crouched behind barricades, but we saw few civilians. That dense mass of humanity that was Hong Kong lay hidden in their cellars. Many were killed by bomb or bullets, and others were burned alive. The Japanese were following a carefully laid plan. Spies and saboteurs had prepared landing places by the seizure of strategic positions, and aided by Japanese troops garbed as civilians who fired from the buildings. The main body of the enemy crossed the channel in barges and boats. Many of them swam across. We arrived at brigade headquarters at Wong Nei Chong without casualties. Well, this is called um, a splinter-proof shelter. It's basically a strongly built, reinforced concrete bunker. And it's a very extensive bunker. So we're standing just outside it at the moment. It's a submerged bunker beside a car park. Many people would walk past this bunker very regularly and not know anything about its history. And this would have been built when? Uh, This would have been built sometime between 1936 and 1941. And what we're looking at basically is a big concrete structure with steel very badly rusted, but steel shutters over the windows and steel doors. And these buildings would provide protection from bomb splinters, artillery splinters, bullets. It would need something pretty powerful in terms of explosive to break open these heavy um, steel doors and shutters. So you'd have soldiers inside? There were soldiers inside. It was actually a stores shelter um, and a platoon HQ. And it was also the site of um, one of many major atrocities that took place in the Battle of Hong Kong. So what happened here on Friday, probably around lunchtime, after fighting all around this area that we're in, a lot of the British soldiers took shelter in this building. And eventually the Japanese started getting grenades down the ventilation shafts. So many of them were wounded by the grenade fragmentation blast inside the shelter. They decided to surrender. The Japanese said if they came out, their lives would be spared. So they came out, single file, and they lined up in three rows right where we're standing. While they were lined up here, there were Japanese soldiers coming up the road behind us, Stanley Gap Road, and heading down towards Wong Nai Chung Gap. When they saw these soldiers who were in rows outside this shelter, kneeling, uh, surrendered, um, they attacked them. So they attacked them with pickaxe handles, with bayonets, with anything, helmets, boots, fists. And a lot of soldiers were badly injured. Three of them were killed. And those that survived 
were taken to a mess hut, kind of dining hut, which was on the roof of this building. So back in 1941, there was this dining hut, a wooden building with a concrete floor and an oven and trestle tables running down the middle. And into that small building were crammed over 100 prisoners of war, many of whom died in there, many of whom were badly injured, and they were kept there overnight. They were given no food, no water, no medical attention. It was really a black hole. So where Philip and I have just come is uh, about 100 metres away from Parkview and at the site of the Hong Kong Trail. Um, so you've got joggers going for their morning exercise. And the actual bunker is very overgrown. The Hong Kong Trail actually goes off slightly to our right and heads up to Jardine's Lookout. So this trail here that we're going to take is um, a government-sponsored battle trail, and they have designated the, um, this area as a protected area. Where we're actually standing now, we've moved up the road a little bit onto the roof of the first shelter that we just looked at, and we're now standing on the concrete floor, the base of the mess hut, and there's a concrete oven, or the remains of a concrete oven, Taking advantage again of every bit of cover and the short lulls in the firing, which came from both the enemy and our own boys in the forts, I gradually made my way up the hill. Fortunately, my comrades had identified me, for I was not fired upon by them, and was able to reach the summit and tumble into the trench behind our pillbox. Here, the situation was indeed desperate. All but the seriously wounded were up top along the parapet manning the machine guns or supporting them with rifle fire. The Japanese had brought their mortars to bear on the emplacements and shells were exploding all around us. Being weak and dizzy and not being able to see properly, I was of little or no use. I almost passed out again, so I took cover inside the tunnel that ran to the partly underground chamber of the pillbox. Here I collapsed on the floor and tried to collect my senses. Several of the platoon, dead or desperately wounded, were lying in this inner chamber. The place was also being used to store ammunition and spare arms. At intervals, men came in to get ammunition or to dress their wounds. Suddenly, there came a terrific explosion. They'd scored a direct hit on the pillbox. I was blown into the connecting tunnel flat on my face. I felt someone rush over me as I crawled out into the main trench. When I reached the end of a small branch trench, I lost consciousness. I awoke later in the afternoon to find a Corporal Britton lying across me. He was badly wounded, and when I tried to move, he motioned for me to lie quietly. The Japanese had wiped out all resistance by mortar and artillery fire, and their infantry was now storming the position and bayonetting the wounded. I again passed out and remembered no more until I awoke to a fine drizzle of rain in the darkness. There was no movement from the pillbox, all was quiet. Only the dead remained. There was just enough light for me to see my way around. I sat up. It was cold. This and the rain had no doubt revived me. I found that I had little or no use of my left arm. Later, I learned it had been broken when I was blown out of the blockhouse. After a while, when the sky became a little lighter, I struggled to my feet and made my way back into the pillbox. It was deserted and partly collapsed. Extending from the pile of rubble, I could see the bodies of comrades. Along one side, there still remained a rack of rifles. I took one of these, found a full water bottle from which I drank, and decided to make my way as best I could towards the first pillbox we'd stopped at on our way to our present position, the one manned by the Hong Kong volunteers. And this concrete floor that we're standing on, you can see it's about, well, it's actually 36 foot long by about 15 foot wide. It's pretty small. Into this small area were crammed all the prisoners of war, many of them shot, many of them wounded, many of them bleeding profusely, many of them dying from their wounds, many of them 
having to lie on top of another. No sanitation, no food, no water and no medical treatment. And while they were kept here, British mortar fire directed at the Japanese in this area landed on, the, on this hut and a number of those that were already injured and um, suffering this uh, awful experience in the black hole were either killed or, or received further injuries. This was on Friday the 19th of December and the following day on Saturday the 20th they were taken out from this mess hut, tied up in groups their hands were tied, um, and then they were tied in groups of six, seven, or eight in clusters. And then they were marched from here, where we're standing, down the road, Stanley Gap Road, down to the reservoirs, up to the gap between Mount Parker and uh, Mount Butler, and down to North Point. A long journey, and quite a hilly journey, especially for wounded men. And as they went down that road, it was a main Japanese supply route, so all the Japanese were coming up, you know, with horses, uh, mules, uh, material, trucks, infantry. And many of the tied-up prisoners were abused again with helmets or punches and kicks. And any that couldn't make it would be cut loose and bayoneted and thrown over the edge. But here we're standing, and as you say, there's no markings. There's nothing to indicate to me what these structures are. In terms of the fact that they were built in the, towards the end of the 1930s, does this mean that the administration here already knew what was coming? Yes, I think they, they did. Hong Kong avoided building fortifications, um, batteries, in the period up till about 1936 because of the so-called Washington Treaties that imposed on Japan, America and Britain a restriction from building forts and defences in the Asia-Pacific region, and also um, imposed restrictions on armaments and warships, battleships, size of battleship, size of gun, and so on. But by 1937, Japan had invaded the rest of China, having already invaded Manchuria in 1931. So Japan had abrogated the Washington Treaties, and it now looked like war was a distinct possibility. Although, right up until the last minute, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, nobody knew for sure that war would come. Many people thought Japan was blustering. Although there were preparations and buildings like, you know, these batteries were standing around were built, people didn't really necessarily expect the war would definitely come. When you look back 75 years on, when you, when you look at these structures, Philip, what would you like to see happen in Hong Kong? Well, I'd like to see the government try and preserve them a bit. I'd hate to see anything done like what they do in Singapore in Sentosa. For example, I'd hate to see them painted in disruptive camouflage pattern. I'd hate to see them cemented over. I'd hate to see them made into kind of ghastly tourist attractions. The, the beauty of these structures that we're looking at now are that um, they're in their original form. They haven't changed. I'm now going to show you a, a photograph taken in 1947 for war crimes trials of the place where we're standing. And in this photograph, you can see the magazine across the road. What's a magazine? Storage for ammunition. So as of the late 1930s, would you have had uh, British Army personnel um, here in Hong Kong um, as a colonial administration, plus also Hong Kong volunteers, which were made up of a variety of different nationalities, and these were men who um, had other jobs, but uh, then um, started having some form of military training in the expectation of an invasion. These men, would they just come out here on the weekends, or was there permanent personnel here? There were permanent personnel here. But in the run-up to war, before the 
Hong Kong volunteers were mobilised, they would have only come up here on weekends and, um, and for training. The army in 1941 was composed of the Hong Kong volunteers, about 2,000 men, and as you said, from many different nationalities. And the volunteers divided themselves into companies. So um, number one company, infantry, was made up predominantly of English expats, businessmen. Number two company was made up predominantly Scottish. Number three company, which defended this area we're in, was predominantly Eurasian. Uh, some of them had Chinese dads, so they had a Chinese name. Some of them had Chinese mums, and they would have a British name. And then there were two Ch Hong Kong Chinese companies in the Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps, and there were two Portuguese companies. But within these companies, there were men of all kinds of nationality. Russians, there, were, there was really every, every nationality you could think of serving in the Hong Kong Volunteers. And then, of course, there was the regular army. So the regular army was represented by 2nd Battalion Royal Scots, 1st uh, Battalion Middlesex. They were represented by two Indian battalions, a Rajput battalion and a Punjabi battalion. Very late in the day, in November 1941, they received reinforcements from Canada when two Canadian battalions arrived, the Winnipeg Grenadiers and the, uh, the Quebec-based uh, Royal Rifles of Canada. Yes, yeah, some very young men who were shipped over, very green, a lot of them, hadn't uh, seen any kind of military service and very little training. Um, but here, where, where we're standing by the Hong Kong Trail, I mean, what I also find incredible is that you'd have had a situation where people at that time would have been aware, obviously, that, that Hong Kong had a high chance of being invaded by the Japanese military. They'd moved south um, from Manchuria down south through China. It seemed very likely that they would enter Hong Kong. But... Um, I also find it incredible that for, for these people that just a few days before, yeah. so, um, you know, and they're, they're just looking at Hong Kong, they're being forced marched, and yet they would have seen that this was their home. It, yeah. it must be absolutely, I mean, it was dreadful, but surreal at the same time. Yeah, and many of them had wives and children here as well, um, especially the volunteers. The w women and children had been evacuated in 1940. Once again, trouble threatens in the east, and the civilian population of Hong Kong is leaving the affected area. Families wonder where and when they will meet again. Britain sends Empress of Japan to take the women and children from the danger zone. The guns which arm the British liner Empress of Asia show they mean business in this China port. All loaded and ready to sail, the ships will soon glide out of the harbour. Mines and submarine nets guard the channel entrance to the British Crown Colony. They're headed for the Philippine Islands and after a 36-hour voyage, they arrive in typhoon-whipped Manila Harbour. Great Britain and the United States remove their women and children to the sanctuary of American territory. As they come ashore, 1,800 strong, they're taken over by soldiers of the United States Army. Most of the evacuees are to find a haven of rest at Fort McKinley. Because in 1940, there was a real major scare that Japan was going to invade um, Hong Kong. Um, they'd already arrived on the border in 1938. In December 1937, they'd taken Nanking. Um, so, you know, the threat had existed really for some time. In fact, you know, when you, when you really analyse things, the, the reason why Japan invaded Hong Kong and other parts of Asia, colonial European colonies in Asia, kind of dates back way back. You know, you could probably go back as far as 1895 in the first imperial war between Japan and China. Um, and Japan's victory, which shocked um, uh, many people in the world at that time, because they hadn't expected that. And their acquisition of a bridgehead in continental Asia. Um, 
and then there's a some, bridgehead. A bridgehead, a, a sort of like they 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 won territories. They they uh, as a result of the um, the treaty that ended that war, the Treaty of Shimonoseki, they uh, gained um, well they gained Formosa, now Taiwan, and they gained um, parts of southern Manchuria, now known as the Liaoning Peninsula. Um, so that gave them a bridgehead, and they had an ambition to. Um, they wanted almost like in the German concept of Lebensraum, um, living room. They wanted living room in Asia. They wanted room for factories. They wanted room for agriculture, and they wanted room for settlement. Japan had no natural raw materials, and it had a large population, and they wanted colonies. They want. They 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 could see no reason why Japan should not have colonies like Holland, Britain. Uh, France in in Asia, they they wanted their share as well. Um, so you know by by 1941 the mantra was they wanted to free Asia from European colonialization, and they wanted to create a new order in Asia under Japanese dominance. Um, and the mantra was Asia for the Asiatics, which appealed to a lot of people um, until they realised that the new landlord. Was actually much worse than the old one. In my 1947 photograph, which was one of the exhibits at the war crimes trials, everything that we've just been looking at the large extended submerged or sunken bunker by the car park, the concrete floor of the mess hut, the uh, magazine for the AA battery are all shown in this photograph. I'm pointing to the photograph um, to a structure which was the command post for the battery behind us. And that building is still up there, shrouded in the trees. But right now, we're standing next to a row of um, military-grade structures. If you go inside those structures, they're they're still very dry. You'll notice that they have steel hooks on the walls, which were used for bunks. And the bunks were basically stretchers. So during battle, they could unship the the bunk and use it as a military structure. And they could sleep... Um, three, six or nine men and they will, they would also be used as stores, as platoon HQ in addition to being used as accommodation. At home I've got a World War II field telephone that uh, either probably came from Singapore but could have also come from here. What always struck me about this box when I, when I get it out of the cupboard is just how heavy it is and just the kind of kit that these soldiers had to carry around was enormously heavy. Yeah, and that, and that telephone, field telephone set that you have would be connected by cable. So they had telephone cable running everywhere. I mean, back in 1941, there was, the only communications were basically telephone communications. So every battery, every pillbox um, was linked up by telephone cable. And when there was a lot of artillery or mortar fire, those cables could be severed. So they had linesmen out repairing the telephone cables, even you know while shells were falling all around them. Very dangerous job. And so, so it wasn't a great way of maintaining communication, but the only other way of doing it were runners. So runners would um, you know, leave one station, run to the other station to deliver a message, and hopefully they wouldn't be killed on the way or on the way back. They also made use of dispatch riders, many of whom were killed as they were motorcycling to, give, um, t- to deliver messages. So radio communication, pretty much non-existent, although the Japanese used it to some extent. 
So, based on the field telephone that I have, um, it was in a large metal box, and um, he would have strapped it round his shoulder, and then at the same time as he's... So this man who's... The linesman who's putting probably putting out the line for this, uh, or the cable, so he would have had the phone and then be sort of circles of cable over his shoulder, or...? Yeah, um, uh, there would be... Basically, they, they would have a coil, of, a, a big coil strapped to them as well, which they would unravel. Um, most of the field telephone sets that we used here were kind of like, they weren't really mobile, not that mobile. I mean, you could put it on your back and move it from one place to another. But once you put it in, in, in situ, it remained in situ with its uh, cable connections. And also the young soldiers coming in from Canada, did they have the correct uniforms for this kind of temperature? I mean, obviously in December it would have been a little bit cooler. They had battle dress. Actually, oddly enough, uh, the battle dress quite thick, surge-like material. Um, oddly enough, it was the volunteers who had the rather thin um, uh, uniform of shorts, khaki shirts and uh, jerseys. So, in many cases, the volunteers were able to get battle dress from the Canadians. Canadians were quite well supplied. The only problem is that vehicles didn't arrive because they went on another ship. And so they never arrived in Hong Kong before the war started. And they ended up being diverted to the Philippines, where they were used by the Americans and then later acquired by the... Um, Japanese and used by them. In terms of clothing, you know, the Canadians were pretty well prepared. Only the only the only problem for them was their vehicles. But the big big problem for the Canadians was they weren't trained. They weren't properly trained for combat. They'd been doing um, garrison duties. One battalion in Jamaica and one battalion in Newfoundland. And when a study was done of the combat readiness of the Canadian infantry, they were classified with the lowest category, which is C which means not combat ready. They shouldn't have been deployed into a war situation. But in fairness, nobody knew that a war was definitely going to come. So they thought that once the Canadians got here, they'd have time to train, time to get used to the two-inch mortar, the three-inch mortar, get used to the grenades, and get to know the topography of the island. But, of course, you know, after they arrived, three weeks later, the war started, and... Not only did they not have their vehicles, their brain gun carriers, their trucks, their motorcycles, they still hadn't had sufficient training. There hadn't been enough time. There was also insufficient weapons. There was a shortage of mortars, generally, and mortar ammunition. One of the biggest problems they had is they didn't know the island. If you said to them Mount Butler or Judding's Lookout, they, they wouldn't know where those places were. So it was very difficult for them not knowing the, la the, the lay of the land. The British never expected to be able to defend Hong Kong. I mean, remember, Winston Churchill said of Hong Kong, there is not the slightest chance of defending Hong Kong if the Japanese attack. Um, I would rather take troops out than put more troops in. And because he said that, um, it's a little bit surprising that the Canadians were sent to Hong Kong a few weeks before war broke out. That is also the reason why there was a paucity of aircraft and naval assets. I mean, like aircraft, there are only five... And they also moved quite a lot of the British Army out. They did. They, um, they had a policy called milking, where, you know, senior NCOs and officers were moved to other more important theatres of war. Naval warships had been moved to Singapore. Um, most of the British military was based in Singapore and Malaya. Those two places they thought could be held... They thought Singapore was impregnable. Uh, but Hong Kong, they knew they could not hold. It was too close to uh, the Japanese army in southern China. It was too close to Japanese airfields in southern China and Formosa, now Taiwan. So there were only five aircraft. They were obsolete. They were 
biplanes, they could only fly at about 100 miles an hour. They were useless. And they, they were mostly destroyed on the first day of the war. Navy, there were three destroyers. They were all First World War destroyers. Uh, two of them sailed for Singapore on the first day of the war. That left one, which had been equipped as a mine layer and was carrying out mine laying operations. There were four river gunboats. So they had river gunboats, uh, the one destroyer, and they had eight motor torpedo boats. The motor torpedo boats were wooden. They were fast. They were lightly armed um, with Lewis guns. They also had torpedoes. So the Navy and Air Force were weak, only five air aircraft. But there had been rumours about a, a squadron of fighters being sent up to reinforce the Air Force. And so when um, Japanese aircraft appeared in the sky early in the morning at 8 o'clock um, on Monday, the 8th of December, a lot of people thought they were the new reinforcements coming up from Singapore. They thought they were the Buffalo Brewsters that had been promised. And then, of course, they realised that it was they were Japanese aircraft. And Kaitak was um, the first place to feel the brunt of war when it was bombed and many of the civilian and military aircraft destroyed within the first hour. My thanks to Philip Cracknell, who runs a blog showing his finds in the hills, plus the other stories coming out about the Second World War here in Hong Kong. Next week, we continue our walk while hearing more detail about that fateful day, the prisoners of war, and from Tom Marsh's diary. We also hear from David Bellis of Grulo.com. The Hong Kong History website has a special diary section with multiple accounts of the battle and subsequent occupation. You can sign up to Grulo, and those daily accounts from 75 years ago will be sent to you via email. Here's wishing you a lovely Christmas. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Hong Kong Heritage, produced and presented by Anna-Marie Evans on this Christmas Day. You're tuned to RTHK Radio 3. Yeah, yeah, yeah. RTHK Radio 3. Don't encourage young people to drink or taste alcohol. Drinking adversely affects young people's brain development as well as causing emotional problems and physical harm. Family members and adults should keep alcohol out of young people's reach. Be a responsible adult. Don't encourage or challenge young people to drink. For more information on young and alcohol-free, visit the Change for Health website of the Department of Health. Protect young people from harm. Say no to alcohol. Fifteen minutes before seven, it's time for The Essay, which explores faith, belief and mythology in the countries of the far north. And today the program is presented by writer Andrew Brown, who spent part of his childhood in Sweden during the 1960s. In the 70s, he married a Swedish woman and raised a family there. Today, he remembers how his mother-in-law was dedicated to keeping the Swedish Christmas traditions alive. Sigrid always cooked the same Christmas meal. A great boiled ham with mustard, little frankfurters that squirted and burst from their tough skins when attacked with a fork, a cold salad of herring and beetroot, boiled potatoes, and a sparkling seasonal drink, julmust, that tasted of ancient carpets. There was nothing else to accompany the meal but water or coffee. It would have been a dreadful violation to bring alcohol to the house. Not drinking, in the English sense of drinking, was almost all she had left of her religion by the time I met her. 
Though you could tell the story another way and say that it was fear of alcohol and the determination to fight it which had cost her both her faith and her marriage. When I describe her like that, she doesn't sound the mother-in-law I would have chosen, but I loved her daughter and we were lumbered with each other. I may not have been the son-in-law she'd have wanted, but I at least was lucky I could not in the event have had a better one. She was one of the kindest people I ever knew, and one of the most humble, too. She taught her grandchildren to milk the lean cows that are kept on Swedish smallholdings, and all her life retained a child's appetite and relish for the world. She loved the seasons, the heat of sunlight or the bite of snow. In her youth, she'd nearly been a missionary in the Congo, and there was something about the way she talked